over to Hebrews chapter 7 and 8. I feel impressed with the Lord to share some things with you. I guess if I was to put a title on this, I'd call it the new covenant with a new commandment. And that may not really ring your bell, but you know, most Christians don't really understand the new covenant. Many people, the only difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is one blank page in your Bible. And everybody runs it together and they try and relate to a God who they think is this angry, harsh God. Now, some of you may disagree with that assessment and you think, oh, that's not so. But really, uh, during the old covenant, God did things that are completely out of line in the new covenant. And he, it is not the same. And very few people understand this. And because of it, they just mix it all together. And because of it, they come up with a schizophrenic impression of God. They aren't sure if God is the God of the Old Testament today or the God of the New Testament. They aren't sure if he's ready to judge somebody and punish you and hold your sins against you or if he is merciful to you. And um, I could give a lot of examples of this. I don't want, I could spend all night long trying to make my case on this. So I'm just going to say some things real quickly. I pray that you will let the Holy Spirit bear witness because you may not You may not agree with my assessment at first, but I believe that 99.9% of all Christians have an impression of God that is skewed because of the old covenant and the way that God related to us. It's not that the old covenant was wrong. It was just incomplete. And we have a much better covenant that was established upon better principles. And today we have a relationship with God that an Old Testament saint could have never had. And if you don't understand that, and if you don't read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament, you will come up with wrong doctrines. And this is what's so prevalent in the body of Christ. Let me just mention a couple of things. Like for instance, over in Psalms chapter 51, I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but you can turn over there. And this is where David repented of his sin with Bathsheba and he prayed a prayer. And he said, Lord, create in me a clean heart and restore my spirit, my soul unto you. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And we sing this in church to this day. There's a song about creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Did you know that that is not appropriate for a New Testament believer to pray that? It's scripture. David prayed it, but he wasn't born again. And it was appropriate for him to say, oh God, don't take your spirit away because I've sinned. But in the new covenant, he says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And God is never going to take his spirit away. And if you pray that kind of a prayer, it is an indication that you don't understand the new covenant. And you think that God is going to come and go based on your performance. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. He came upon people, but then if they sinned like Samson, he would leave Samson. And Samson had to beg for the presence of God to come back. And the body of Christ still believes that this happens today. I'm taken into the back room often before I minister when I go into churches and they take me into a back room and they pray that God would anoint me and that he would just pour out his spirit on me. And I don't ever say anything because I'm so polite (laughs) and kind, but man, that is a stupid prayer. (laughs) 
The Lord said, the spirit of the Lord God, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he hath anointed me. It's already been done. And it says in first John chapter two, verse 27, that the anointing which you have received of him abides within you. And you need not that any man teach you anything, but as that same anointing teaches you all things and is true and is no lie. And even as he hath taught you, you shall abide in him. In the new covenant, God doesn't come and go in your life. He doesn't come upon you and you don't have to pray and say, oh God, anoint me. I want to tell people when they do that and say, look, if you don't think I'm anointed, why did you ask me to come? Why did you put out publicity and you don't even know for sure if I'm going to be anointed? You got me in the back room two minutes before it's time for me to go out praying that I'll be anointed. But that's the mindset of the old covenant. Under the new covenant, God doesn't come and go. You are anointed when you're asleep. You're anointed when you're coming in, when you're going out, you're blessed. The anointing of God rests on the inside of you continually. And yet the average Christian doesn't know this. And that's the reason we say, oh God, come and be with us tonight. I don't know if you noticed, but I hadn't prayed that. I didn't ask God to come here. And then we'll say, oh God, just go with us as we leave this place. Those are stupid prayers. (laughs) Stupid prayers. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of you. There's a special presence and power of God. How's God going to answer a stupid prayer like come and be with us when he says, I'm already here. Some of you think, well, you're just making a big deal out of nothing. See, that's the reason that it's, that it's not working for you because you don't know what the word says. You don't understand that in the new covenant, you don't pray the way that David did. In the old covenant, Elijah, second Kings chapter one, he had uh, prophesied to the king that he was going to die because he wasn't seeking God. That also doesn't happen in the new Testament. God's not going to strike you dead because of your sin. That's right. But Elijah prophesied that because in the Old Testament, God did punish and judge people. In the New Testament, he's judged Jesus and he's not going to strike you for your individual sins. But Elijah prophesied that and because of that, Ahaziah, the king, sent his messengers to take Elijah captive. And they sent him and he was sitting on top of a hill. And the captain of 50 soldiers came and said, the king has said, come down quickly, O thou man of God. And he said, if I'm a man of God, let fire fall from heaven and consume you and your 50. And instantly fire fell out of heaven and killed 51 men, burn them to a crisp. So the king sent another 50 and the captain over those 50. And he came and he says, oh, thou man of God, the king has said, come down quickly. And he says, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. And fire fell and killed another 51 people. A total of 102 people killed. You can read about it. Second Kings chapter one. And people think, see, I want to be a prophet of God that I can call fire down and do things like this. And they, this, they try and emulate that and think this is the way we need ministers like this today. Well, in the ninth chapter of the book of John, Jesus went into Samaria and I could spend a long time talking about this, but actually, uh, Jesus was more justified if he would have called fire down out of heaven on these people than Elijah was because these people had already received his ministry in John chapter four, the woman at the well. They already knew he was the Christ, but because he was on his way to Jerusalem so he could fellowship with what they considered to be the religious hypocrites in Jerusalem, 
They snubbed him and wouldn't even let him come into town after they had already confessed him and acknowledged him as the Messiah. But when they saw that he was going to go down there and worship with those people that they hated, they rejected him. This was a a religious and a racial prejudice, the two strongest prejudices that we have. And when uh, Jesus' disciples saw what they did to him, they came and John said, Lord, will you that we call fire down out of heaven the way that Elijah did? They wanted to emulate Elijah and do what Elijah did. How did Jesus respond? He says, he rebuked them. And he says, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The son of man did not come to destroy man's life, but to uh, free them. And he just said, let's go to another place. Did you know that if Jesus would have been present in second Kings chapter one, if he would have been here on the earth, releasing the grace of God instead of the wrath of God, he would have rebuked Elijah for what he did. Elijah wasn't wrong because he lived under a different covenant where the wrath of God was poured out. But under this new covenant, God doesn't deal with us the same as he did before. And it's amazing how people miss this and they just run it all together. And because of it, there are many Christians that fear that God is going to reject them because they haven't studied the Bible. They haven't prayed. They haven't done this. They haven't done this and this. And they're trying to earn the favor of God. Under the old covenant, that's the impression it was given, but it's totally different under the new covenant. And most people don't have a way of dividing between this. And they think, so are you just saying, well, throw away the Old Testament? No, man, I spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament, but I study it in light of the New Testament reality of what Jesus did. And so I'm going to try and minister on this and establish that we have a better covenant, a new covenant, and a different command. The 10 commandments are not what you're supposed to run your life by. Some of you that really didn't bless you. (laughs) I'm going to explain this in more detail. Let me just say, I'm not saying that we do away with the 10 commandments. They are still right. That is the right thing. That is a holy standard, but nobody could live up to it. And in the new covenant, we have a different Uh, standard over in uh, John chapter 13, verse 34. And I'll be dealing with that later. But here in Hebrews chapter seven, this is Charlie LeBlanc's favorite passage of scripture in the Bible. (laughs) It's an inside joke. But uh, let me just read a couple of passages to you here out of Hebrews chapter seven. He's talking about how Jesus, it starts off in Hebrews talking about that Jesus is the greatest manifestation that God ever gave the world. It supersedes angels. It supersedes prophets. It supersedes everything that Jesus is the express image of the father. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. And then he just starts talking about all of the ways that Jesus is superior. And in Hebrews chapter seven, He's talking about that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's a quotation of Psalms 110 verse four. And he goes into this great lengthy thing showing that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the priesthood of the Old Testament. And this is a major deal. And he makes this conclusion here in the seventh chapter that if you change the priesthood, you've got to change the whole law. And so he's showing the fact that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He didn't come through the tribe of Levi. He came through the tribe of Judah. That means that everything's got to change. And he uses Psalms 110 
verse 4, as the authority that this was prophesied that this would all change in the New Testament. So here's some of his statements in Hebrews chapter 7. And in verse 17, he says, For he testified, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalms 110, verse 4. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. You know, if words mean anything, which they do, this ought to just, this ought to just uh, shake you to your core. Because this says that because the priesthood is changed, there is a disannulling. Did you know when you annul something, like when you get married and then you get it nullified, that means that it's just as if it never existed. It's not like you were divorced and then remarried. It was nullified. It's like it never happened. The word annulling is a strong word. And this word disannulling is just like putting a superlative on it, like it's a super annulling. That the Old Testament law has been just nullified as if it never existed as if there never was anything like that. Do you know that's offensive to most people today, but you take the Jews of Paul's day or whoever it was that wrote the book of Hebrews and you say something like this, and this is the reason they crucified Jesus. It's the reason they persecuted Paul because this was just so contrary to their religious system. They're just saying like, it's like the Old Testament never happened. It's annulled. Boy, this is a radical, radical statement And it says that there was a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. In other words, this is an indictment against the Old Testament law that it was weak and it was unprofitable. I'm probably going into more detail later in the week on this, so I'm not going to totally explain this, but let me just put in that it's not that the law was wrong. There was nothing wrong with the law. In Romans chapter 7, Keep your finger here and let me just turn to this real quickly and I'll come right back to it. But in Romans chapter seven, it's talking about this very thing. And it says in verse 12, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me, which all of these verses were talking about that the law ministered death. The law made sin come alive. The law killed me. And so he says, was the law then evil? No, the law is good and holy. And so was the, that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The law was holy itself, but we were unholy and no person has ever kept the law. No person has ever been able to live up to the 10 commandments. No person has ever done these things. There was nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments and the law of God. What was wrong was us. We couldn't live. And so here is something that religion has missed. The law wasn't given so that you could keep it and thereby earn relationship with God, earn God's favor. The purpose of the law was to show you your sin and to reveal your sinfulness and to make sin come alive. 
and make sin abound. The law actually strengthens sin. All of those things I said are scripture. I'm going to deal with this later in more detail. But the purpose of the law wasn't to set you free, but to let sin beat you. Because the truth is it had already beaten you and you just didn't know it. We thought we were okay because we compared ourselves among ourselves and measured ourselves by ourselves. And we thought, well, I'm as good as this person over here. And so God had to remove this deception. How did he do it? He gave a standard that was so holy that it condemned every one of us. Nobody has ever kept the law. Nobody can earn favor with God through your own goodness. And so the purpose of the law was to show you how sinful you were so that you'd quit trusting in self-righteousness and you'd say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Sad to say religion has turned it around and instead of using the law to condemn and to show you how much you need a savior, they have been using the law to say, this is what you have to do. And if you don't do this, God isn't pleased with you. And that was never the purpose of the law. I'm going to explain that in a lot more detail, but basically that's what it was saying over here in Hebrews chapter seven also. So going back to Hebrews chapter seven, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. You cannot draw nigh to God. You cannot have an intimate relationship with God if you are living under the old covenant way of approaching God. It actually separated you from God. It showed you your sin. It made you guilty. If you feel unworthy, if you believe that God can perform miracles, you don't doubt God's ability. You just doubt God's willingness to use his ability on your behalf. It's because you have a law mentality. You are living under an old covenant type of thinking. Thank you for that thunderous silence. <laughs> Some of you say, oh, wow, that can't be. Yes, it is. It's the law that gives guilt and condemnation. If you feel guilty, if you feel condemned, if you feel unworthy to receive from God, it's because you have an Old Testament law mentality. And some of you are thinking, no, it's because I really am. No, you really aren't. If you've been born again, if you hadn't been born again, we can get that taken care of tonight. But if you've been born again, you are not unworthy. That's what that book on spirit, soul, and body is about. It will change the way you understand God and how he relates to you. But there, it is a completely brand new covenant and there is a better covenant established on better promises. Now go down into the eighth chapter and look in verse six. But now hath he obtained, this is talking about Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent than the Old Testament law. We have something better. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Again, if words mean anything, this ought to rock you because this is saying that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. They aren't the same. They aren't equal. The new covenant is infinitely better than the old covenant. And if you're trying to mix them all together and trying to approach God the same way that David did, the same way that Elijah did, the same way that Moses did, then you're missing out on it. This is why the Bible says in Peter that it says that these Old Testament saints longed for the day that you and I live in, 
they sought earnestly and tried to figure out what God was prophesying through them about us. What we have is infinitely better than any of them. Second Corinthians chapter three talks about that the glory that Moses had is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that you and I have. And yet most people in here think, oh man, I wished I had what Moses had. No, the truth is Moses wishes that he had what we have. What we have is infinitely superior, but we don't know what we have. And most Christians, most churches have mixed the old and the new covenant together so that it's all one. And they try and relate to God and follow the same example that Abraham, that David, that Elijah, that Moses did. And they don't even know what we've got as a New Testament believer. So they're praying and saying, oh God, don't leave me. Oh God, pour out your Holy Spirit, create in me a new heart, which you got a brand new heart the moment you got born again. You don't need to pray for a new heart. You need a new head. You need your mind renewed. There's, your little heart's perfect. Amen. That's what that book is all about. Uh, you've already got it. So quit trying to get it. Your heart, in the spirit, you are perfect. You are as perfect at this moment as you will be a billion years from tonight in eternity. Your spirit is already perfect and complete. It's your brain that's the problem. This is the reason the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse two, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You get transformed through renewing your mind, not through praying for God to touch your heart. You don't need God to heal you. You've already been healed. You got the same power that raised Christ from the dead living on the inside of you. The problem is we don't know what we've got. We're going, well, the doctor says right here is my report that I've got stage four cancer. You know what the doctor says, what your body feels, but you don't know what you have in the spirit. Man, those are radical statements, but it is absolutely true. God's already done his part. You already have raising from the dead power on the inside of you. You don't need to be touched. You're already touched. Amen. So we've got a better covenant. And then in verse seven, it says, for if that covenant talking about the first covenant, the old covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Pretty obvious, isn't it? We wouldn't need a new covenant if the old covenant was sufficient. The very fact that we got a new covenant means that there was a problem with the old covenant. If there hadn't been anything wrong with the old covenant, God wouldn't have made a new covenant. So why do we want to go back to a covenant that God thought it was necessary to replace, to supersede? There's a difference between the way God dealt with people in the old covenant versus the way he deals with people in the new covenant. Jesus changed everything. And most of us don't know that it's been changed. So he says in the next verse, in verse eight, for finding fault with them, he saith. And now this begins to quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. This is an Old Testament prophecy. And he spends about four verses here quoting from the Old Testament to show you that even in the Old Testament, it prophesied the end of itself. It prophesied that there was something better coming and people were looking for this new covenant. The Old Testament people were looking for the day that we live in. The people today are looking back and wishing we could be like the Old Covenant. Because we don't know what we have. 
So it begins to quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and it says, For behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And of course, this is now talking about not only it's not limited to the Jews, but the New Testament showed that this has now been opened up to the entire world. Non-Jews are now a part of the church. And so this is written to the church. In verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. The Old Testament covenant was based upon our compliance, upon our performance. And the reason the Old Testament covenant didn't work is because it was conditional upon our obedience. The new covenant is different in that it's conditional upon Jesus' obedience. The covenant was made with Jesus and he will never fail. And anybody who puts faith in him and makes him their Lord gets in on the covenant, not because of our obedience, but because of his. Hallelujah. This is what it means when we pray and say, Father, in the name of Jesus. To some people, that's just a religious phrase that you use. But what it means is, Father, because of Jesus' obedience, because he kept the law, because he fulfilled this, I now expect to receive because of what Jesus did. If you pray and say, Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to heal me because I'm fasting, I'm praying, I'm doing as good as I can, and I'm working hard, and I expect it. I deserve it. You know what you just did? You took the name of Jesus in vain. You said it was based on what he did, but then you mentioned all of your goodness. That's taking the name of Jesus in vain. And religious people do this all of the time and don't even know it. I have people come down here in these healing lines and they say, I fasted, I pray, I go to church, I pay my tithes, I'm doing everything I know. How come God hasn't healed me? Because you just took the name of Jesus in vain. You are basing your receiving on what you have done instead of what Jesus has done. You didn't tell me about what Jesus did and how you're trusting him. You told me about all the good things that you've done. That's not what moves God. In the Old Testament, you had to be holy and do these things. In the New Testament, it's not about you. Your performance isn't the issue. It's about is your faith in Jesus? Are you standing in the new covenant or are you still in the old covenant basing receiving from God upon your own effort? That usually goes over about like that. (laughs) And so in verse uh, nine, in verse 10, it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You know, this theologians hang a lot of stuff on this one verse. And they say that all of Israel is going to be saved whether they seek the Lord or not, just because they're a Jew, they're going to be born again. That's not what this is talking about. I've already said a couple of times here that this is when it says, I'll make this covenant with the house of Israel. This is now available to everybody, Jew and non-Jew. This is talking about the body of Christ. And all this is saying is that you won't have somebody else have to tell you 
about God, but you will have God living on the inside of you and giving you this revelation personally. It's not going to be just intellectual that you heard it from somebody else, but it is going to come by revelation. God himself will live on the inside of you and will reveal this to you. He will give you a heart and he will write this upon your heart and put it in your own heart. This isn't saying that every Jew is going to be saved. Nobody's going to be saved unless they put faith in Jesus. I don't care what your ancestry is. Jews don't get saved because they're Jews. They get saved because they put faith in the Lord Jesus. And if you don't believe that, then you're going to have to throw out the book of Acts because this is exactly what Paul told the Jews. Acts chapter four, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. You have to be saved by putting faith in Jesus. I don't care what your genealogy is. Amen. So this is just saying that we're going to personally know the Lord. It's not going to be where you just hear about the Lord and you hope you've got salvation. You hope you have a relationship with God. No, there is going to be this relationship to where you know him personally. God himself lives on the inside of you and he writes his word on your heart. Man, that's awesome. In verse uh, 12, it says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Do you recognize how different that is than what religion is preaching today? Religion is saying, God is holding this against you. The reason he won't heal you is because you did this wrong because you did this wrong. I was talking to a man down here tonight who was asking prayer for his mother. And I'm not critical of this man. I'm just using this as an example. But he was asking about how could I pray for his mother? And I said, well, I said, you can't always make another person receive because sometimes they're just reaping what they've sown. It's the way that they've believed. And he said, oh, but she's a good woman and she's been a Christian and she's loved God her whole life. And I said, I'm not saying that that's not so, but I'm just saying that, you know, if she didn't believe in healing and if she has spent her whole life disbelieving in healing and discounting that, and now she's in a position where she needs healing, she's just going to reap what she's sown until she changes what she believed. But he kept bringing up, but she's a good one. And I said, that's not what I'm talking about. God doesn't move in your life because you're good or because you're bad. It's because of what you believe. This is why you can see a man who's not living for God get healed of something. And I mean, they're drunk. They do things wrong and they get healed. And here's dear old Saint so-and-so that's been sitting in the same pew her whole life. Just like the skunk that came to church had her own pew. Amen. (laughs) And I mean, she fixes cakes and knits and does things and she never misses a church service. And she had the same thing that the drunk had and he got healed and she didn't. And now she gets upset. Well, why did he heal her and didn't heal me? It's because the drunk put faith in Jesus and didn't have any faith in himself. He says, man, I hadn't got a chance. And somebody says, it's not based on you. It's based on Jesus. And you mean Jesus would heal me completely independent of myself? And you say, yes. And so they they receive it based on what Jesus did. But dear old Saint so-and-so is still listing all of her accomplishments and, and showing God all of her attendance badges. And God, look what I've done. Aren't I worthy now? No, you aren't. I know some of you are thinking, oh man, you're just saying it doesn't matter how you live. To God, it doesn't matter. He 
relates to you based on what Jesus did. Now to people, it matters. If you don't live right, you go out here and rob a bank. If you speed, if you do things, I guarantee you, you're going to get caught. You can be punished. You can be fined. You can put in jail. People will be mad at you. There are consequences to your actions, but it doesn't affect God. God deals with you based on what Jesus did, not based on what you do. Man, that's awesome. That is tremendous news. This is saying that God is merciful to your unrighteousness. The church as a whole is saying, no, God's not merciful to your unrighteousness. You do something wrong and God's going to get you. God will punish you. God won't answer your prayers. Nearly every person in here has prayed and asked God to do something. And when you don't see it come to pass, your first thought is, I don't deserve it. I haven't fasted enough. I hadn't prayed enough. I'm not good enough. I knew I should have read my Bible. I knew I should have done this. And you immediately start relating God's lack of manifesting what you need to your unworthiness. That is an old covenant mentality. The new covenant says, I'm going to be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquity. I will remember no more. And somebody says, wow, that was true up until the time I got born again. I believe he forgave all of those past things, but you don't understand. I've messed up since then. I had a guy come to me one time and he was drunk and I was trying to say some of these same things to him. And he says, but you don't understand. Sometimes I messes up. (laughs) And you know what? Sometimes we messes up. And people will think, well, I was forgiven, but you don't understand. I messed up today. Well, it doesn't matter. I I, I plan during this week to teach on that all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins under the new covenant have already been forgiven. Even sins that you haven't confessed have already been forgiven. And I know some of you, your head is just reeling like this can't be. You go back to scriptures like Isaiah chapter 59, where it says, my arm isn't short that it cannot save, nor my ear heavy that cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and God. And, and it talks about all this, but again, Old Testament scripture in the New Testament, you have eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 12, eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9, 15. You've been sanctified, perfected forever. Hebrews 10 verses 10 and and 14. And it's your spirit that has been made perfect forever. Ephesians chapter one, verse three, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise so that you don't change. You don't fluctuate in your relationship with God. I know I'm saying a lot of things right here that are so contrary to all the stuff that we've been taught that some of you are saying this can't be, but if you can stick with me this week, this is what I'm going to be talking about and going into scriptures and showing you every one of these things. There is a radical, radical, radical difference between the old covenant and the new covenant and very few people know it. And so they just put it all together and think that sometimes God is merciful. Sometimes he's angry. Sometimes he'll forgive the woman taken in the very act of adultery and not condemn her. And at other times he's going to stone you to death for what you've done. There's a difference. 
The next verse in verse uh, 13, this is Hebrews 8, 13. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. The very moment that that says new covenant, that means the old covenant is old. And it says, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant, there is still benefit in going back and studying and seeing how God dealt with man. And and it still teaches us what is perfection and what right is. There is great benefit to the old covenant. I'm not saying that we should get rid of it, but you have to interpret it and understand that it's passed away. And now we live under a different covenant and it says that it's ready to vanish away. And yet very few, to most Christians, this is nearly blasphemy. It's nearly heresy. And that's because we don't understand the new covenant. And that's the reason that we aren't reaping the benefits of it. That's the reason we're still living as Old Testament men, still asking God to come and be with us and go with us as we leave here. And oh God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And asking God to heal us when he says he's already done it. Asking God to bless us when he says he's already blessed us with all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. Asking God to do what he says he's already done. It's because we don't understand the difference between this old and new covenant. Now let's turn over to John chapter 13 and I just want to put this into the mix and then I'm going to spend the rest of the week trying to explain my way out of all of these things that I've said. (laughs) In John chapter 13, this is Jesus teaching the very night before his crucifixion. And just by virtue of the fact that this is the last thing he ever said to his disciples here on the earth, that means that this must have been super important. You know, if for somehow, if, if somehow I knew that this was my last message that I was ever going to minister, I guarantee you, I would be pulling out all of the stops. I would be sharing the most important things with you because this would be my last opportunity. It would be, there, there wouldn't be any jokes. There wouldn't be any wasted motion. Man, I would be serious because this is the last shot that I have at you. Jesus was about to be crucified and he was telling his disciples these important things going back. And this is where he washed the disciples' feet. Even Judas was there and he washed Judas' feet. And it says at the beginning of this chapter that he knew all things that were going to happen unto him and he knew who it was that was going to betray him. And yet he in love washed the betrayer's feet and humbled himself and ministered unto him just as if this guy was holy. That's different than the old covenant. Jesus is totally different. And during this night, he said this unto his disciples in verse, this is uh, John chapter 13 and verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, this is talking about after Judas left, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while am I with you, as it turned out, less than 24 hours. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come now. Uh, So now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another." 
So I've used those other verses in Hebrews chapter seven and eight to say that we've got a new covenant. And it says in that he said new, he made the first old and that which is old is ready to vanish away. Well, in the same way that that was true of the covenants, this is also true of the commandments. He says in verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. So in the fact that he said, I have a new commandment for you, he made the old commandments old and they are ready to vanish away. That's a radical statement. We not only have a new covenant, but we have a new commandment. And this new commandment supersedes all of the old commandments. Again, this does not mean that the old commandments were wrong. They were perfect, but we weren't perfect. And so God gave us a commandment that is love others the way that I have loved you. And that summarizes everything. Look at this passage in Matthew chapter 22. This is Jesus speaking and he had a uh, Pharisee or let's see who it was. Genesis, I mean, excuse me, Matthew chapter 22 and in verse 36, it was a lawyer that came unto him in verse 35 and asked him a question. And here's what he said in verse 36, master, which is the great commandment in the law? Talking about the old Testament law. Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Did you know that that was in Exodus chapter 20, one of the 10 commandments? That was from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. That wasn't one of the 10 commandments. And then he says in verse 39 or 38, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's from Leviticus 19 verse 18. That wasn't one of the 10 commandments. Jesus said the greatest commandments in the Old Testament are love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on to say, On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. You know, you can see this array of speakers right here. There's all of these speakers, but they are hung on one point up there. If it wasn't for that point up in the rafters that was able to hold that weight, all of this would fall. Everything is hung on that one beam that's up there. And this is saying that the the thing that holds up all of the other commandments is love God and love people. That's what everything else hangs on. And if you take those two things away, then there's nothing. Here's another way of saying it over in Romans chapter 13. Look at this passage of scripture. I know I'm giving you a lot, but there's a lot to learn. And most of us don't get this in our church. Romans chapter 13 in verse eight, it says, Oh, no man, anything, but to love one another for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. That's a strong statement in verse nine for this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not bear false or excuse me. I missed that. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. In that verse nine, he quotes the sixth or the uh, seventh commandment and then goes back to the sixth commandment, then the eighth, ninth, and 10th commandment. You know, the first five commandments were all about loving God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make any false images. It was all about things that uh, you were supposed to do. You're supposed to remember the Sabbath day. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. It was all the things you're supposed to do. The second five commandments are all about things you are not supposed to do. You shall not kill. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not steal. You shall not uh, covet and all of this. And he quotes the second five commandments about things you shall not do. And he says, it's all comprehended in one thing, loving your neighbor as yourself. Did you know if you truly loved your neighbor, let's just look at each one of these things. It says, thou shalt not commit adultery. If you truly loved other people, you would never commit adultery. First of all, if you truly loved your mate, you would never commit adultery. Our society has lied to us and painted things wrong. And they, they, they have movies and shows where they show people that are quote unquote really in love, but then some sexy thing just walks by and they just fall in love and they can't help it. They didn't want it. They resisted, but they just couldn't help it. And that's a lie. And a little baby that shoots a bow and arrow and you fall in love and you fall out of love. That's a lie. That is not true. Titus chapter two, verse four. Keep your finger here, but I'm going to come back in the name of Jesus. But look in Titus chapter two. This is telling the old women or the older women. (laughs) Verse three, the aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Most people pass over this and don't see the importance of this, but this goes completely contrary to our society today that says you just fall in love and you fall out of love and you can't control love. You either have it or you don't have it. That's what our world is telling us. And they just say, I can't help it. I just, I lost my love for this person. You didn't lose your love. You lost your lust. Most people didn't get married based on love. They got married based on lust. It's true. Jamie and I held a marriage seminar one time and they went around and asked the 40 something couples how they meant. And the typical story was, well, I was drunk and I saw this woman in a bar and I woke up the next morning sleeping beside her and we decided to get married. And that's, and they say, so we just fell in love. That wasn't love. That was lust. The man picks the homecoming queen because she is so beautiful. And I mean, everything's just picture perfect. And you choose them. You know why? Not because you love them but because you lust for them and you want to be walking down the street with them having their hand in your, around your arm so that everybody can see you and say, oh, isn't he lucky? Man, I wished I had her. It's all selfish. And so you marry her because she's just absolutely beautiful. And the woman marries the man because he was the home, uh, the football captain. 
and he was buff and he had long wavy hair. This huge chest, and then he gets the Chester drawers disease. <laughs> That's where your chest is done dropped down into your drawers, amen. And he loses his long wavy hair and he gets bald on top, and all of a sudden she says, Well, the I, I just lost my love for him. All you lost was your lust. And the guy sees her take off her wig. And then she takes off her fi- false eyelashes and then her makeup and man, it just gets worse and worse. And she takes off her fake leg. And... <laughs> I'm just not in love anymore. You never were in love. You were in lust. It was all about what you could. It's like taking a little cup and you stick a straw in it and you just suck it until you hear. <laughs> and as soon as you suck all the life out of them, you throw them away and go get you somebody else who will now be a feather in your cap. Come on. Come on. That's what's happening. But see, that's, oh, I, just, I just don't feel love anymore. This says you teach the younger women to love their husbands. Love isn't something that comes on you like a seizure. You don't catch it like a cold. You choose to love a person. I talked to a man from another country one time who they arranged marriage and it was selected from the time he was a little kid who was going to marry. And they just put them together and they paid the dowry and it was an arranged marriage and said something about, man, that must be terrible. And he said, no, it's great. I said, but did you love her? And he says, in our country, we love the one we marry. In your country, you marry the one you love. You can choose to love anybody. Jesus loves you and it's not because you're the sharpest knife in the drawer. God so loved the world, not because we were so beautiful. We weren't the homecoming queen. We didn't have it all together. God chose to love us because he is love and not because you're lovely. And if you get God's kind of love, you can love a person completely independent of their actions. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not what the world teaches, but that's what the Bible teaches. So I say all of that to go back. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Did you know if you truly loved your mate, you would never commit adultery. People that commit adultery, and I guarantee you there's people that have committed adultery sitting right here in this room. It was because it was all about you. You didn't think about anybody but you. You loved yourself. You didn't love the prostitute or the person that you were having a relationship with because that's somebody's daughter. You didn't care about, if you love that person, you wouldn't treat them that way. You wouldn't want somebody to treat your daughter that way. A person who commits adultery is a person who is absolutely wrapped up in themselves. I had a friend of mine who was a minister who fell into sexual sin and he got to where he would go out and have relations with two or three prostitutes a day while he was a pastor of a church. And I asked him, I said, how did you do? I can't even imagine such a thing. I can't even go there. I said, I don't want to go there. I don't want to figure out how you did this. But I was just saying, I just, I just can't understand. How can you do something like that? And I said, man, I would just be so smitten like God. I would be knowing that God was looking at me. How could I do this in front of God? 
And this man said something to me that was so revealing. He says, when I fell into those things and I got to where I committed adultery, he says, it's just like I had blinders on. I didn't look to the right or the left. I never thought about God. I never thought about anything. All I did, I just got my hormones flowing and I was out to satisfy my own lust. He says, if I would have one time thought of what I was doing to my wife, my children, and to my Lord, I'd have never have done it. He says, it's just like I couldn't think of anything. Very revealing. And I can guarantee you, if you have committed adultery or if you're being tempted with adultery, you can sit there and and whitewash it and say, well, you don't understand. It runs in my family. Everybody's done this. Uh, My wife isn't meeting my name. You can do whatever you want to. But the bottom line is you don't love anybody but yourself. If you were to use your head instead of some other organ of your body, you would never do that kind of stuff. This says that not committing adultery is solved by loving your neighbor as yourself, specifically your mate. If you loved your mate, would you want her or him to commit adultery on you? No. And if you love them the way that you want them to love you, you'd never have to think about adultery. You'd never have to have a law about adultery. So that's taken care of by just loving your neighbor as yourself. The second thing it mentions right here, thou shalt not kill. If you kill somebody, it's because you don't care about them. You care about yourself. You are going to do something that you think will advantage you. You get mad and angry and you vent your frustration and hurt and do stuff. You do it to protect yourself or whatever. I guarantee you, if you were more concerned about the other person than you are about yourself, you'd never kill very simple. Thou shalt not steal. A person that steals is a person who's only thinking about themselves. You don't want somebody to steal from you and yet you will go steal somebody else's assets. And you think, well, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm not hurting anybody. And yet you're taking something. You wouldn't want somebody to do that to you. If you loved other people the way that you want them to love you, you would never steal from a single person. And this isn't just on a personal level, but I'm talking about stealing from an employer. There are many of you that steal time, steal pencils, steal things. You may work for the government. When I was in the army, people would just do things as, wow, the government, you know, it's the government. They can afford it and you just do whatever. It's wrong. You wouldn't want people to treat you that way and yet you treat them that way. It's because you're all wrapped up in yourself and you make a very small package. It's all about self. It's all self-love. And it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say that thou shalt not lie. There's a difference between not bearing false witness and lying. It includes not lying. You shouldn't lie. That includes exaggeration. But you know, it's more than that. False witness, like for instance, a person could go out and you could say, oh man, this is the greatest product. And they ask you about a competitor and you only tell the negatives about the competitor. You don't put it in its proper light. We see this in the politics all the time. Man, they quote something that some person did something and the person might have done that, but they don't know why they did that. They don't put it in its proper context. 
You know, I hesitate to use anything specific lest somebody will um, criticize me and I stepped on your politics. But, but I'm just going to use this as an example that Mike Huckabee, he ran for president four years ago and the conservatives killed him because he raised taxes in Arkansas. And they said he's not conservative. And yet, if you look at it in context, when he came in to being the governor, uh, Arkansas was like the 39th state in Texas. When he left, they were 48th. The percentage actually went down, but they had not had uh, roads paved and things like this. So anyway, my point is that yes, technically he did raise taxes because there was a crisis created by previous deal, but as a portion of income, the state prospered and Arkansas is now one of the few states in the nation that has a surplus, multi hundreds of millions of dollars surplus because of the groundwork that he laid. He was very physically conservative and yet the uh, conservatives crucified this guy. And you know what? It may not have been a lie, but it was false witness. It didn't put it into its context. And you hear this done in politics all of the time. People will say this person said this and it may be what they said, but they're taking it out of context. You're twisting facts and figures and it's false witness. That's what the command is in in, uh, Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And I guarantee you politics is nearly all false witness. They've come up with a surefire way to tell if a politician's lying. You look him straight in the eye and if his lips are moving, he's lying. (laughs) That's a joke, all right? I know that there's, I know that there's good politicians. It'd be awesome if we had some good politicians in here. I'm not again, I'm just saying that, you know what? There's a lot of, of twisting and manipulating things and people don't think that that's wrong and it is wrong. You are leaving a false impression. You can sit there and say nothing but the truth, but not tell all of the truth, not put it in its proper context. You could say that a person did something, but not explain why they did it. And you can leave a wrong impression. Did you know that if you truly loved that other person, you would never bear false witness. You would never do these kind of things. Love would be the antidote for every one of these. And the next one, it says, thou shalt not covet. Did you know Colossians chapter three, verse five says, covetousness is idolatry. Very few Americans would consider themselves idolaters. And yet Americans are some of the most covetous people on the face of the earth. We have one of the highest standards of living in the world. Most people in the world envy us. People that are even considered to be on the poverty level are among some of the wealthiest people on the face of the earth. We have a lot and yet America is just inundated with we've got to have more. Lusting for things. Some of you have two or three flat screen TVs, but you need five. You got a great car, but you want one that's better. If you were to win the lottery, you wouldn't be satisfied with where you are. You'd just go get more in debt. You would, you would max yourself out up until your eyeballs. I mean, how many bathrooms do you have to have to take care of business? (laughs) How many beds do you have to have in a house to be able to go to sleep at night? 
And yet the average person, if you were to get a raise in your job, instead of being content where you are, you would just go max yourself out and get something bigger and better. There is no limit. Most people just would keep going until forever. What does it take to make you satisfied? Most people live a super covetous life to where you've not got enough. You'll never get enough. And that's idolatry. You know what would solve that? Is loving God and loving other people more than you love yourself. Instead of going and getting your fourth car for two people in the family, why don't you go buy a car for somebody else? And give them a car. Some of you, it's like, that's an absolute shock. That's like a new wrinkle in your brain. Like, use my money to buy somebody else a car? Why would I do something like that? Covetous people don't think that way. But you know what? It's actually more blessed to give than it is to receive. I have bought lots of cars and given lots of cars to other people, and I love it. I love giving cars away and things away. God's kind of love, loving other people would fulfill all of the law. The Old Testament tried to get people to do the right thing through fear and punishment and external restraint. You go out and do this and I'll kill you. The New Testament tries to get people to do the right thing by just changing your heart and putting so much love on the inside of you that love doesn't make you want to go kill, steal, commit adultery. It changes your heart. It motivates us to do the same thing. We ought to actually, a person under the new covenant ought to live holier than a person under the old covenant, but for totally different reasons. Now, not in order to appease God, but in thankfulness to God for how awesome he is. I know some of you, there's probably some people just livid about, I can't believe you're saying this about the 10 commandments. I'm not against the 10 commandments, but I'm just saying we got something better than the 10 commandments. And that is love God with all of your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's better than the 10 commandments. You can do that. You know, I've got to quit. The heart can't absorb more than the seat can endure. So I'm not through. I'm just going to quit. But let me say one last example before we quit. And then I'll just pick up again tomorrow morning. But did you know one of the commandments is that you shall honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land. That was one of the 10 commandments. Did you know what the punishment for not doing that was? That was in Exodus chapter 20. Let me just find the exact verse. I'll read this to you. Some of you need to see this in your Bible because you wouldn't believe this. Here it is in Exodus chapter 20. In verse 12, honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Now, look at what happens if you don't do that. Turn over to chapter 21 and verse 15. He that smites his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. 
Verse 17, he that curses his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. And one last passage, and I'll explain this. Deuteronomy chapter 21 is also talking about honoring your parents. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, in verse 18, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of the place. And they shall say unto the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of, of his city shall stone him with stones that he dies. So shalt thou put evil away from among you and Israel shall hear and fear. This is what you do. If you're going to live by the 10 commandments, then you're going to have to also live by Exodus chapter 21 verses 15 and 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 on through 20 something. You know why we don't kill people today? I mean, if we were, if we were living by this today, did you know that most of you would have been dead? (laughs) I'm not saying that to be mean, but how many of you were ever rebellious and stubborn? How many of you were ever a drunkard? You'd be dead. You know why that happened under the old covenant? You know why that the Lord told them to go in and kill the men, the women, the children, and the animals? It was a command that you can't leave anything alive. Kill them all. You know, by today's standard, we sit there and say that's barbaric, and yet this is in the Bible. You know why that was done under the old covenant? Because uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, I believe it's verse 23, says uh, stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Or how's that go? Lori, could you put that up there? But rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Under the old covenant, if you were stubborn and rebellious, it was demonic. It's still demonic. Did you know stubbornness and rebellion is not just human nature. It is demonic. And under the old covenant, people couldn't be born again. They couldn't get their nature changed. So once a person became demon possessed with stubbornness and rebellion, it was like a cancer. And the way we treat cancer today, you can't cure it. You know what they do? They cut out the parts of your body that have cancer in it. And it's terrible to think that you cut out a person's Uh, part of their stomach or their colon or something like that, but it's better than the person dying. So we go ahead and sacrifice a part of the body in order to save the whole. Likewise, under the old covenant, a person, once they were given to the devil, you couldn't be delivered. There wasn't deliverance in the Old Testament. People could not be set free from demons. You couldn't be born again and get your nature changed. And so you had to treat that like a cancer and just kill it. That's the reason he said, kill the women, the children and the animals, because bestiality among the, uh, the people in the promised land was the norm. People were having sex with their animals constantly. The animals were demon possessed. The people were demon possessed. Children were dedicated unto the devil at birth 
and they were demon possessed. And the people that were outside of relationship with God were so possessed that it was like a cancer. And even though it was a terrible thing, it actually was an act of mercy on the human race as a whole to kill them all, men, women, and children, because they were demon possessed and it would infect the entire nation of Israel if he hadn't have done it. But in the new covenant, we got a different thing. We can now be born again. And if your children are stubborn and rebellious, you don't kill them. You pray for them and God can set them free and they can be set free. And we got a better covenant. You don't go in and kill all of the infidels like the Muslims. See, the Muslims are still living under that old covenant mentality and they just want to kill everybody and they don't understand. They don't know about being born again. They don't know about getting your life changed. And you don't kill everybody today. Praise God for mercy and goodness. We live under a better covenant. But if you're going to say, but I believe you still got to have those 10 commandments. Well then kill your kids if they rebel. Now don't do that. I'm just saying that that would be consistent because that was the way the old covenant was. We now have a new covenant and we now have a new commandment that superseded the old covenants. And now you don't sit there and say, thou shalt not do this. You just say, love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And that takes care of everything. You will wind up fulfilling the law more through love than you ever did through fear of punishment. Man, I've said a mouthful tonight and I'm going to spend the rest of this week explaining it. And I believe that the, probably the vast majority of people here, that I've said some things that are so radically different than the way you've been taught and the way you think that it may be hard for you to embrace it. But again, I challenge you, I've used scripture for every single point I've made. I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of scripture. I encourage you to do what Romans 3, 4 says, and that says, let God be true and every man a liar. I know some of you think, but this is not what I was taught. Most people don't let the word get in the way of what they believe. They just believe, well, because this is what I was taught my whole life. Well, it doesn't matter. I've shared the word. You can't disprove what I've said from the word. I'm encouraging you to let the word of God get in the way of what you believe. And we're going to be sharing things with you this week that'll show you we got a new covenant a new commandment that is so much better. And if you can understand this, it will show you the goodness of God. It will answer questions. You will come out from under guilt and condemnation. You'll begin to recognize who you are in Christ. This could revolutionize your life. This is the true gospel and it'll change you. Amen. So I encourage you just to open up your heart and receive these truths. It'll make a difference in your life. You know, the very first thing that I need to do tonight is to say that if you aren't born again, you ought to take advantage of this because God has already forgiven your sins. The price has been paid. You don't have to wonder, will he forgive me? He already has. It's not a matter of will he forgive you. It's a matter of will you accept his forgiveness? He won't force it upon you. And it says in Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
So God's already paid everything. It's just a matter of, will you confess him as your Lord? That's more than just saying the words. You have to mean it. You have to be willing to turn your life over to him and make him Lord. That's not saying that you'll be perfect, but you do have to be willing to make him your Lord and give him that kind of control in your life. If you've never done that, if you've never put your faith in him, if your faith is still in yourself, you need to be born again. You know, here's one way you can tell. If you were to stand before God right now and if he says, what makes you worthy to enter into heaven? How would you respond? If you responded by saying, but well, I got, I've gone to church and I'm a good person and I've done this and this and this. You'd go straight to hell. I don't care how good you are. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You don't get into heaven because of your goodness. The only answer that would get you into the presence of God is to say, it's not me, it's Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and I have received forgiveness as a gift. So as I was explaining that, if you would have pointed to what you would have done and said, God, isn't it enough? Will, can I enter into heaven? Then you need to make Jesus your Lord. You need to trust what he's done instead of trusting your own salvation. And the second thing that every person in here has to have is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes many things, but it includes speaking in tongues. And in the Bible, when people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues. And I know that there may be some of you that are just surprised that I would say this because, you know, on television, I don't spit and scream and wipe my fevered brow. And I'm not Pentecostal like most people. And some of you didn't understand what you were getting into by coming here. You didn't realize what this was. But man, I am baptized in the Holy Spirit and I speak in tongues. And I'm telling you, it is absolutely essential for you to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Jesus told his disciples, don't tell anybody about my resurrection. Don't share anything until you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You are never intended to live the Christian life under your own steam. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you said, you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And I can tell you, when I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I got power in my life that I had never had before. Somebody's thinking, so are you saying that you have to have the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? No, I'm not saying that. You can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, you can get there quicker because you aren't going to have any power. You're going to die of something premature. You can go to heaven without the Holy Spirit, but why would you? Somebody says, do you have to speak in tongues? No, you get to speak in tongues. It's a privilege. It's an honor. Somebody said, well, that's not what my church teaches. That's the reason I'm not in your church. But that's what I believe. I believe that's what the word of God says. I'm telling you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you don't speak in tongues, you need it. Somebody's saying, well, I'm just not sure. Well, I am. I am absolutely sure that you need this. If you aren't sure, you ought to trust somebody who is sure. Amen. You need this. You know, if you need to make Jesus your Lord or and or you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues, I'd like you to lift your hand and let me pray with you so that you can receive here tonight. If that's you, I want you to just be bold right where you are. Raise your hand. 
And I want to pray with you, and we're going to help you to receive. Anybody else? Lift your hand. I know somebody's thinking, what are you going to do? I'm going to pray for you and give you a free book. What a deal. You got nothing to lose, everything to gain. You know, if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but were too chicken to do it, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward and we want to pray with you and help you to receive right here. Just come up, come up right now. If you raised your hand, come forward and let me pray with you and help you to receive salvation and or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Isn't this awesome? Thank you, Jesus. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. I believe that there's other people that for whatever reason you aren't coming forward because you're wondering about so what are you going to make me do all we're going to do is pray for you give you a book I don't have a church for you to join I'm not asking you to buy anything we just want to help you if you don't speak in tongues you ought to be down here somebody says well I've tried this before and nothing happened what if I go down there and nothing happens again Well, then nothing happens. But I can guarantee you, if you stay there, nothing's going to happen. You ought to come forward. You You ought to take a step of faith and say, you know what, I want this. Some of you may believe you've already got the Holy Spirit and maybe have a word or two, but you aren't fluent speaking in tongues. You need to get the fullness of this. You need to get to where you are praying in tongues. If if you aren't fluent, you ought to come down here. This will change your life. Amen. All right, before I can pray with you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the scripture says that Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So you have to receive the giver before you receive the gift. You need to make sure that Jesus is your Lord. So I want to pray first with any person who's not absolutely certain about your personal relationship with the Lord. If you feel like you need to pray and receive Jesus as your Savior, I want you to raise your hand and I need to pray with you first. Here's one down here. Anybody else? Here's a couple of more. Anybody else? Here's one right here. That's four, five. Anybody else? Are you sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it. You just got to be sure. The Bible says that you know in yourself that you've passed from death unto life. Do you know for sure that you're born again or are you just hoping so? You aren't sure? Well, let's pray. Oh, you are positive. Good. Amen. You need to know. You know, if you raised your hand for this, I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'm going to say words similar to what you need to say. You don't have to pray the exact prayer that I do, but you need to make these points. I'm going to base this on Romans 10, 9. And I'd like to ask every person in here to pray this prayer with me. And if you will say this with your mouth and believe in your heart that what you're saying is coming to pass, you'll be born again right now because Jesus has already paid for your sin. It's not a matter of will he do it. It's a matter of will you believe. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. So let's everybody follow me in this prayer. Just say, Father, Father, 
I'm sorry for my sin. I believe that you died to forgive my sin. And Jesus, I receive that forgiveness. I make you my Lord. I believe that you are alive. That you now live in me. I am saved. I am forgiven. Right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You believe that? Amen. You believe that? Awesome. Awesome. You know, if you believe that, welcome to the family. You just got born again. And I've got a book that I'm going to give every one of you. Everyone here will get a book entitled The New You Slash Holy Spirit. The New You is talking about what true salvation is. So if you prayed this prayer, it will explain it and it'll give you a list of my teachings that are uh, a sequence, how to get started in your life with the Lord. And then the one on the Holy Spirit is all about receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. But now, according to the Word of God, every person up here is prayed to make Jesus their Lord. And the scripture says that when you do that, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. In your spirit, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says that twice in 1 Corinthians. So the significance of that is God created you for a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to wonder, will he fill you? This is what you were made for. God wants you to receive the Holy Spirit more than you want to receive it. And it's not based on your holiness. Some people teach that you can't get the Holy Spirit until you get holy. If you could get holy, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. The reason God's going to give you the Holy Spirit is to give you power so that you can start living beyond yourself and you'll have His supernatural power to start living holy. So don't let some feeling of unworthiness hold you back. All we're going to do is like open up the doors to this temple and give God the freedom to come in. Welcome Him into your life. He won't force Himself on you. You have to reach out and invite Him in. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer where we just open up our heart and receive the Holy Spirit. And then I'm going to ask our prayer ministers to come up here and lay hands on you. Because the Bible says that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was given. You can literally release the Holy Spirit through laying hands on people. So we're going to have people come up here and lay hands on you. And then after they lay their hands on you, I'm going to ask you to quit asking for the Holy Spirit. There's a time to ask. He says, but if if he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And there's a time to believe that he heard your prayer. So after they lay hands on you, we're going to quit asking. And instead, we're going to just start thanking God that he gave you the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you feel like. I don't care whether anything physical happens. We aren't asking for a goosebump. We're believing by faith that he will keep his word and give you the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. They're going to lay hands on you. And then after that, I want you to start thanking God for the Holy Spirit. I want you to lift your hands. After we pray, this is, well, you can do it now, but after we pray, I want you to lift your hands and start thanking Him because the Bible says that when you lift up your hands, you bless the Lord. This blesses God. It's just like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you stick your hands up. It's like, I surrender. I yield. This is your way of yielding. 
So we're going to pray. They're going to lay hands on you. You're going to lift your hands, start thanking God. And then those of us that know how to pray in tongues are going to pray in tongues because the Bible says when you're praying in tongues, you're giving thanks. So I'm going to ask people all over this auditorium to just join in and pray in tongues so that you won't feel like somebody's listening to you. And you quit thanking him in English and instead start thanking him in tongues. Amen. I know some of you think, but how do you do it? I don't know how to pray in tongues. I've got a book that is going to explain the whole thing. But if you're ready, you could do it right now. The number one thing that stops people from praying in tongues is they think that it's got to be just pure Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit's going to take control of you and He's going to make you talk without your cooperation. It's not like that. It's just like when I spoke tonight. I believe that God spoke through me tonight. But He didn't take my mouth and make it talk. That's why it came out in Texas. It came out in my personality. I spoke but the Holy Spirit inspired it. It's the same thing speaking in tongues. You have to talk. You have to make sounds. You have to make syllables that you don't know what it means and by faith believe that the Holy Spirit's inspiring it. And once you get over the newness of it, He'll confirm to you that it's being inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's coming out of your spirit instead of your head and it'll make a huge difference. But if you're ready, you can speak in tongues right now. Amen? Y'all ready? Bible says believers will speak with new tongues. I want you to say, I'm a believer and I will speak in tongues. Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you for the ones who receive their salvation. And we believe that every one of us here tonight is a new creature and that we were created to be a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. So right now we open up the doors of our temple. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come into our lives. We welcome your power. We want your presence and your power. Come and live and empower us right this moment, Father, we ask for it. Now we lay hands on you and release the Holy Spirit. We loose the power of the Holy Spirit to come into you right now. Father, from their head to their toe, we just loose this anointing to flow in their lives. And Holy Spirit, come and take up residence. Empower us now in Jesus' mighty name. Praise God. Man, this is the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing. Now, I want you to put those hands up. Start thanking God that He gave you the Holy Spirit. Regardless of what you feel like, believe His Word. Believe His promise. Thank Him out loud. Talk out loud. Thank you, Father, for giving me the Holy Spirit. Thank you that I am God-possessed. Thank you that I am filled with your power from this moment on. Thank you, Father. Now, those of you that know how to pray in tongues, let's begin to worship the Lord and speak in tongues right now. And as we speak in tongues, you just join in with us. You can't talk in tongues with your mouth closed. You're going to have to open your mouth and make sounds. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. If you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear somebody behind you saying, but your tongue will be unique to you. It won't be the same. And you just, you got to just start. And then when it comes out different, don't quit. Keep talking. Just keep talking. And after a while, the Holy Spirit will confirm this to you. It'll just flow out of you. Thank you, Jesus.
Just be bold. Talk out right now. Thank you, Jesus. Don't worry about what it sounds like. When a little baby first talks, it doesn't sound like English. But that parent knows what that child is trying to say. And I guarantee you, he's pleased. Your heavenly father's pleased. It may not be fluent right now. It may be just a few sounds, but your father is hearing your heart. He's pleased with you. Just keep speaking. Keep speaking. Thank you, Jesus. Let me interrupt you here for just a minute. If you'd look at me, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you know, I want to give every person a book because this is really important that you understand what's going on. And I also want to say that even if you didn't pray in tongues, I believe that God gave you the Holy Spirit and you have the ability to speak in tongues, but you've got to learn how to cooperate. When I first prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I didn't speak in tongues. It took me three and a half years before I spoke in tongues, but that's because I was a Baptist. And I was told that this was of the devil. And I was so afraid of getting something from the devil that that fear hindered it. But I've written all of the things that were my problems in this book. And I promise there's been thousands and thousands of people receive and speak in tongues after getting this book. So I want to give every single one of you a book. It's important that you understand that you go on and speak in tongues and learn how to do this by yourself, not just in a group setting. So I I really want to give every one of you a book because this could be the second most important thing that's ever happened. Getting born again is number one. Number two is receiving the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'd like to give every one of you a book so that you can just get the full benefit of this. Amen. So where's Robert? Robert is way over here in this aisle and we've got a room right back there where we got all of the books. If you would just follow him, it'll only take a minute. We want to give you a book. And there's also people there that if you have a question, if you need prayer, they'll pray with you. But all we're wanting to do is bless you. We aren't taking anything from you. And if you would just follow Robert, we would be glad to give you one of those books and make sure that you get the full benefit. Let's praise God for all of these. Amen. Praise the Lord. Isn't that great? Man, that's a lot of people. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. That's wonderful. You know, they'll be back in here in just a minute or so. Right now, what we've got, these are our prayer ministers here, and these are people who are partners with the ministry, friends with the ministry. Some of them are Bible college graduates, pastors, Pastor Bobby Ray from Dallas, 
uh, North Carolina is a really good friend of mine, and he travels with us some. And and uh, the Burks here are from Florida. Man, he received just a miraculous healing a year ago. All of these people know how to pray and believe God. And uh, so we've got them here because I know that there's people that came believing God for a miracle. We see lots of miracles, lots of miracles, blind eyes, deaf ears open. People come out of wheelchairs. We see a lot of miracles. And I know that many of you came believing God for a miracle. I am not physically able to pray with every person who needs prayer. I don't need to pray with you. These people are here to pray with you. So what I want to do is right now, if you need God to touch you and if you need a miracle in your body, I just want to ask you to get up out of your seat and come forward and let one of our prayer ministers agree with you. And we're going to believe God for a miracle. I'm going to stay and lead in prayer as they're praying individually with you. I'll be praying corporately. And we see a lot of miracles, a lot of things called out. You're welcome to stay. But if you need to go, you're free to go. And also, let me remind you that we have DVDs and CDs of tonight already duplicated out there that you can get. We'll be back in the morning at 10 o'clock, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, Saturday at 10 o'clock. And then Saturday night, I'm going to start at 6 o'clock so that our staff can get through and pack everything up and get to bed before two or three in the morning. So remember, Saturday night is six o'clock instead of seven o'clock. And um, praise God, I encourage you to come back. I think it's going to be a powerful teaching that's going to change your life. So thanks for coming. If you need to go, you're welcome to go. You're welcome to stay and pray with us. But thank you so much for coming. God bless you. Thank you, Jesus. So, Father, we just thank you now for all of these people. And we believe that your word says we lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So we are following your instructions and we lay hands on these people in the mighty name of Jesus. And we command sickness and disease to leave. We speak creative miracles over people now in the mighty name of Jesus. And Satan, we command you to loose God's people and let them go. We break demonic things over people in their lives and command that to stop now in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Somebody here's got a head injury and you have done damage to your brain because of some kind of an injury. It could be like a car wreck or just anything where you hit your head and it's causing problems. Here's the healing power of God going out towards you right now. And I believe that God is supernaturally healing them. If this is you, if you've got a head injury, since there's already people standing, stand stand and raise your hand so I can see. Here's a man right here. Anybody else? Here's another one back here. Here's one here. There can be more than one. Here's one over here. Praise God. Father, for these four right now, five back there in the back. Father, I just pray in the name of Jesus. I believe that that is a word from you. And whatever happened to these heads... Whatever injury there is to their head, in the name of Jesus, I speak forth your power and command these minds to be healed. For their motor skills, their thinking, their talking ability to come back in the name of Jesus. Be healed right now in the mighty name of Jesus. Oh, there's the power of God. I believe that God's power is flowing right now and healing you. If you couldn't move or talk or do something, do what you didn't feel like doing. 
Resist this thing and you're going to start seeing right now the power of God is enabling you to do things that you could not do before. Here's the healing power of God flowing in your body. Thank you, Father. Father, we agree and we receive this and believe that right now there is a creative miracle happening in their their brains that they are healed right now in Jesus' mighty name. Praise God. 